he's the closest thing to a 2K player I've ever seen in real life. Welcome back to the Gang Buckets Podcast. I'm Ethan, and I'm joined today by PD Webb. You could find him on Twitter at Above the Break Three. What's up, PD? Hey, how's it going? I'm uh, doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing good as well. And since you are such a master draft analyst, I think it was important to have you on the podcast because you really have a lot of knowledge about all the top players, and in what seems to be a, a not talent heavy draft. So we all know that this draft has a consensus top three on most mock drafts that I've seen with LaMelo Ball, Anthony Edwards, and James Wiseman. So how would you rank them, and who would you take higher on your board based on talent? So I think that my order would be uh, LaMelo and Wiseman. I I think that they're consensus top three based on how the board broke out. I don't think they're necessarily the three best players or the three best players long-term in this draft. And, I mean, if you're considering fit as the imperative of this draft is, you know, flat on talent, it's important to, you know, think about what works best for Carl Anthony Towns or for D'Angelo Russell. And if they're in a win-now mode, the best pick might actually be somebody like Devin Vassell, you know, a wing who can defend and bring shooting, rather than uh, another upside bet for a primary creator. Yeah, because... I just remember when all these LaMelo Ball number one hype was going on, and I remember that D'Angelo Russell just got traded there. So it was like really confusing to me because that fit would seem very odd with LaMelo Ball and D'Angelo Russell. Yeah, so, it's, it's not a clean one. I think oftentimes it can feel like you get all the talent and then figure it out later, but the Wolves don't really necessarily have a later. Um, if this season goes bust, I'm not sure that Carl Anthony Hunts is going to stick around to wait for the front office and coaching staff to to blend those two guys who are you know similar in a lot of usage styles. I just I think that Lamelo makes a lot of sense on paper, but figuring out on a possession by possession basis is going to be pretty difficult. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And if you had your to put your top guy in next year's loaded class, where would he rank? Seven to ten, probably. I think that the top guys in this draft are really hurt by the lack of talent. Like um, Anthony Edwards would be a lot safer in in next year's class because he'd be more likely to go to a home that would work on his development rather than throwing him out on the floor uh, instantaneously. Um, so he's going to go to a situation that desperately needs him rather than if you you know were in his high school class that he spent most of his time in then he would be in a situation where they could bring him along slower and, and work on the, the finer things instead of having to play him 33 minutes a night. So, also, we all know about the COVID-19. So, do you think that part of the reason why this draft is not so uh, heavily touted is because that maybe people didn't get to see some of these players for as long as they could have? I think that having Wiseman not play, basically, period, really hurts um, because there's only 69 minutes of him to really watch at a, at a collegiate level. And when one of your consensus top three guys plays under 70 minutes and the other consensus top three player plays in Australia, you know, halfway around the world, you're left in a class with more questions than answers. And so people have sort of had to find their own internal compass on how they think this draft shakes out. So 
Well, I think that this draft is good from a fit perspective. There is not a locked-in superstar that you can, you know, put good money on to, you know, be a 95 overall in 2K in three years. That's just not the this class that we have. All right. That's, I guess, a pretty good way to put it. And there's also been some rumors recently in Minnesota that they're interested in taking James Wiseman at number one. So in my, I don't think the, the fit is that great next to Carl Anthony Towns. What do you think about that fit? The danger of a Carl Anthony Towns fit is that Wiseman is a project. He has all the physical tools in the world, but his you know, defensive technique on a, on a possession-by-possession basis looks like a teenage big man. And Carl Anthony Towns needs to win now. So, in, again, on a hypothetical on-paper idea of having a guy who can stretch out way beyond the NBA three-point line and the finisher that Wiseman is, makes, a, makes a great deal of sense. But if you only have one year of that pairing, it's not necessarily perfect. On offense, having another guy who thinks that he needs offensive freedom isn't necessarily a good idea next to Carl Anthony Towns. Um, finding somebody who may be smaller usage and knows how to do their role extremely well makes more sense to me. But there's not really a top three, top four player that's a perfect fit for Minnesota unless you're going to wade further down into the talent pool to try to find a, a guy who makes more sense. So we obviously know about the Warriors. They had a terrible year last year, mainly because of injury. Do you think that the Warriors would be wise if Wiseman is available to draft him? Because they do need a center pretty badly, in my opinion. So what do you think about that? I think that that the Warriors have proven that they can get by with replacement-level centers. And while Wiseman is the center that the Lakers have always wanted, you know, the the prototypical size guy who can give you, you know, 20 and 10 rolling out of bed, the theoretical, you know, dominant big man. It doesn't really make sense for their window. You know, Steph and Clay are, are nearing the ends of their, you know, their true primes. Draymond is in a win now mindset and to drop in a teenager doesn't necessarily make a ton of sense. I think that it's more likely that they try to trade down, accumulate assets who can help this three or four year window. And if that's to get a center at, you know, 11 or 14 or whatever number they trade down to, there are players there who can solve their center problem that aren't going to require so much uh, developmental investment, and they can pick up another asset along the way. It's sort of a curse that they pick so highly because, it, um, you know, they have to answer the question of, like, do we want to throw away a potential franchise center well that's not my interpretation of Wiseman I think that's something that the Warriors have, have wrangled with a lot with this process and they've you know been rumored to like every single person in this draft who's declared and strongly considered them at number two just hoping that they can get somebody to scare up to uh to trade up to accumulate assets and let's talk about Anthony Edwards a little bit right now I watched him a couple of times in college and to be honest, I wasn't completely sold on him. You know, there were some games where he would go off and really look like the consensus number one pick. And there'd just be other times where you just wouldn't see him at all. So what do you think are the biggest reasons for his inconsistencies? So I think that there's two issues at play here. The first one is that Edwards needs more structural investment. He was kind of allowed to do whatever he wanted to at Georgia. Um, and Tom Green is not the type of coach to draw up continually inventive sets or to you know find lineups that are continually inventive to get Edwards catches versus a tilted defense. Um, Edwards took nine corner threes on the year and 38 total catch and shoots, which is extraordinarily low for a guy who took 200 total threes. 
So I think that a lot of the reason that he comes and goes out of games is that he can be allowed to settle. And when he's allowed to settle, it, it all depends on whether that off the dribble three is going that day. Even the the famous Michigan State game in Maui, like the first half, he looked awful. You know, it's a, and it's a lot of the same shots that he took in the second half. He just went supernova in the second half. Um, so finding a situation where the off ball scoring, whether that's be whether that be through cuts or finding him open jumpers in the corner or running him off handoff so he can get downhill is going to be essential because if you just say, you know, here's one for flat or here's, you know, high pick and roll, then Edwards is going to struggle and look like the guy that we saw on some nights in the SEC rather than the guy who, you know, appeared in Maui and, and put 40 on, on Thomas's head. Do you think if Edwards went to a more notable program like Duke or Kentucky instead of Georgia, he would have been a more of a consensus number one? So I go back to this uh, this video from Adidas Nations. It must have been like four years ago now, where Sam Mitchell, a former NBA coach, is yelling at, I think it's Jalen Hands, saying, like, when you're in the NBA, you can't shoot every time. Like, you can't take bad shots because these guys on your team are going to be so much better than you. If you take a garbage shot, like, how are you going to tell... How are you going to tell James Harden that that was the right shot? And while it would be nice to put Edwards in a circumstance where he's, you know, uh, coached by Kay or or Cal, the reality is that nobody on Duke Kentucky was better than him last year. So finding him a college situation where another player would force him to fit in is pretty difficult. And that's what made his college experience so frustrating is that there isn't necessarily a natural place that he should have gone that would have solved all these issues just on its face. We all know about the circus with LeVar Ball and LaMelo Ball and how he is. He got pulled out of high school, went to Lithuania, then he went to the JBA, then he came back to Spire Academy, then went to Australia. So he's had a really unusual journey to get to this point. And what is your biggest concern about LaMelo Ball? Because whenever I watch him play, he was clearly an extremely gifted passer. His shot is really weird, though. Not as bad as Lonzo's shot when he first came into the NBA, but it looks really janky. So what's your concerns with LaMelo? I think my biggest concern is uh, how he plays without the without the LaMelo ball system being in place. All of those places, he was the guy. He made every play. He was you know, a heliocentric offense onto himself, um, with the exception of the, the freshman year at Chino, where, you know, he was just leaking out and, and shooting every time he touched the ball. Not that there's anything wrong with that when you're, you know, five foot seven and thirteen years old. But it wasn't what most freshmen in high school have as a uh, as a context. So this will be really the first year that he has a true developmental situation where he has to fit in, and it's going to be difficult because you can't really, you know, say go stand in the corner because you're not harnessing his talents in that way. Uh, but you also can't say, like, all right, it's the LaMelo Ball Show because he's not going to be able to generate efficient offense for a team uh, as a rookie. He's just not uh, strong enough, and the jumper um, is a concern. So I think that finding a organization that can strike the right balance between uh, LaMelo Ball, the creator, and LaMelo Ball, the cog in the system, is going to be the largest concern. So if he goes to a place like the Warriors, like it's not particularly going to help him because he, he's not going to get enough creation possessions. It's, it's the same to some degree can be said to the Timberwolves, where he would have to fight with uh, with D'Angelo Russell. Yeah, I was going to ask you, that if he does go number one overall, what does that mean for D'Angelo Russell? Because I live in Brooklyn, I'm a Brooklyn Nets fan, and the one thing I do know about D'Angelo Russell is he does eat the ball in his hands. 
a lot to succeed. So what do you think about that fit if he goes to Minnesota? I don't love it, to be honest. I think the, the biggest issue is that look, because LaMelo can't shoot and D'Lo can, you have to put D'Lo off ball. It it means he doesn't have the ball in his hands to start sets. I don't. I think that there is a way to run an offense so that he keeps the ball in his hands a little bit more. You know, having a two guard setup rather than you know one guard with with high pick and roll would be two guards with with high pick and roll, and then leveraging Delo's gravity as a shooter uh, with the ball in Lamelo's hands, and then getting Lamelo on in motion to to try to mix up the defense. It, it would be a hard adjustment. Um, it's also important to note that like neither of them are good defenders, and neither necessarily is Cat. So like, while we can focus on offense as much as we'd like. The three of them together would be a uh, a particularly difficult defensive fit, especially without a true lockdown number one type of guy um, who can anchor that defense. Do you think that from all the movement that Lamelo Ball had in his early career, do you think that could actually help end up helping him when he comes to the NBA? Or yeah, I mean, I think that Lamelo's had one of the most interesting uh, routes to the NBA since Steven Jackson, maybe, you know, uh, Dennis Rodman, perhaps just guys where it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense that he got here because most people who would follow that track would have been left on the side of the road. The biggest issue that I have with how he was developed isn't that he bounced around all over the place. It's that it was always the system. Um, he never went to team USA to try to plug in next to other youth stars he never you know jumped onto an EYBL team for a couple of sessions to see how he fit in there was always you know the Lavar model of playing with Chino playing with big ballers and then playing with the, you know the various versions that were pretty similar and while the NBL was a form of normalcy it would it doesn't even come close to what basically every other prospect went with so I mean it was a Lamelo ball version of a of a prospect here and that you know that makes it difficult to know how he's going to port into an NBA game because he would be the third best player on the Timberwolves. He would be, you know, either the first or second or third, depending on how you feel about um, some of the Hornets guys. Like, there is a lot of circumstances that he's never been in before that are going to be required for him as a rookie, where basically every other rookie has been in those situations or training for those situations, and it's just a smaller version. You know, they're used to 30 usage, and now it's going to be, you know, 20 with two. Um, Limo Ball is going to used to be, go from... He's going to go from running the system and being the system and everything being about him and his ability to feel the basketball game to that happening sometimes. And there's no data point to suggest how he'll do with that because he's never had to do it before. So my dad is Israeli and I was in Israel last summer actually and I actually got to see Denny Abdiya play. So I think it's important to ask you about him because... When I did watch him play, I I just I noticed that he's not really a great shooter. So, do you think that he's going to improve his shooting, and maybe he could be a kind of Gallinari kind of a player? And what do you think his ceiling can be in the NBA? So I've always bet on Denny's shooting. He's an extraordinarily hard worker, and he's made continual adjustments to the jumper. Um, it's gotten better, um, and if you take out garbage time or, you know, chucks at the end of a shot clock. His numbers actually don't look bad. The issue is that he can't really create. So do I think that he will, you know, shoot at a league plus eventually? Yes, I really do. To me, that's like the most certain part of Denny's improvement is the shooting. Do I think that he'll create like Gallo? Never. Gallo is is one of the best one-on-one players in our league. 
And Denny struggled to get good looks off versus like pretty talented 17 year olds when he played, you know, uh, with Israel. The the shake, the creativity, the ability to run an offense just uh, with your ability to bend a defense is not there. The route that Denny is going to develop is using the shooting to leverage his passing um, to blend into a larger team and, and run a lot of great actions uh, as a cutter and as a finisher and as a guy who just like plays super hard all the time. And this kind of extends to defense where he doesn't have the the tools to be a primary or secondary defender, but he's a really smart team defender and you know makes the right rotation and is able to to get rotational blocks. But again, not the not the the frame, the feet, or the the length to alter shots. So I think that Denny is a certainty to be a positive contributor on a very good team. Uh, but putting bets on him being this plus creator or a guy who can warp the defense on his own, barring extreme development, I don't think is likely. Okay, and there's an, another player that I saw in college was Obi Toppin, and I, I thought that he looked really good, and he's been generating a good amount of hype as being a potential top-five pick. He, But he is 22. He really does not have a good defensive aspect to his game at all. So how much do you think stuff like that can hurt him? So you're absolutely right that he looked great in college. I mean, he he was probably the best player in college uh, last year, and he played in a perfect system for him. He got to play for you know an NBA style coach playing running you know modern NBA style concepts that put him in advantageous situations at all times. He was always attacking a hard closeout or you know asking a question the defense was unable to answer using his combination of of shooting, shot creation, and athleticism. The problem is that there may not be a as good of a situation available in the league. There's never going to be that level of schematic advantage just from having Anthony Grant be your head coach in the league. And so you have to think, like, is this guy who's a a very good but maybe statistically unreliably unsubstantiated shooter going to continue doing that? Is he going to continue to be a ludicrous finisher? And then we get to the defense where, like, he can't move. Like, he's extremely athletic when he has time to load up, but the problem with being a, a pick-and-roll defender is you have to jump without loading up or you have to jump while backpedaling or you have to you know explosively backpedal and those three things are very difficult for him and he doesn't have the tools of you know of a Wiseman or even of an Isaiah Stewart who have a little more room to make mistakes or make mobility mistakes because they have so much of a bigger frame so being a player who can be targeted on every individual possession who's a very good, but maybe not excellent offensive player. I think that there's that OP is going to be a weapon eventually, but he's going to be very easily targeted and probably less of an impact offensive player than the translation would suggest. So, do you think that he would be better suited as like a complementary player on a contender, or do you think that he would get a large role right away for a really bad team? Yeah, I mean, I think that he's better as a complementary player. You know, it's it's sort of like turbo canter. It's it's that bad on defense, and it's also going to be the like he can shoot. Um, you know, he he can shoot with versatility. He can create his own shot. So there's there's more of a reason to play him in the playoffs than canter. But it's also easier to hide a complementary guy than it is to hide your main guy, especially if they're not you know an Amari level offensive player, which you know Obi most certainly isn't. But to find him in a place, you know, if he were to go to like 
I don't think it's a good idea too. But if you were to go to a Golden State, like that makes a lot more sense because they can just you know roll out these lineups that have a hundred and thirty-five O rating, and it doesn't matter what the defense looks like because they're just going to outscore everybody. Versus a situation where if he's like to go to Cleveland, people are just going to run pick and roll at him every single possession, and there's not really a way to turn that into winning. So, on your Kongu, who I'm pretty sure he played with Lamelo Ball in high school, I think. Yeah, I- uh, he stayed at Chino for four years. So yeah. he they played together freshman and then sophomore year. Then then Melo left his junior year to go to Lithuania. So he's drawn a lot of comparisons to Bam Adebayo. Do you think that those are just comparisons? Or is it just to the fact that they're undersized centers? Um, it's, it's funny because the two actually played each other, which would be like Bam's junior year and uh, Onyeka's freshman year. And that's the undefeated Chino Hills team, so I, we know how that one turned out. I think that the comparison isn't particularly helpful because, like, this is just a style of guy we have now. Super effort-heavy, you know, guys who are very smart with angles, uh, extremely strong, and understand different types of coverages. Onyeka doesn't have the star bet that Bam did. Bam had, you know, more passing chops. He was, you know, higher rated as a recruit, a little bit better frame. A little bit better bounce. Like Bam is, is sort of like the pinnacle of this version of guy. But if Onyeka turns out to be even like a budget Bam, that's an incredible player. So finding finding pathways for him to to create value, whether it's adding shooting or putting him in short roll situations or mixing up coverages or you know blitzing pick and rolls on a possession by possession basis, um, is going to bring a lot of similar value. It also allows you to get as many shooters on the floor as possible around him, which is one of the other lessons of BAM, is that this archetype enables a lot of strategic flexibility. So there are a bunch of point guards in this class, too, other than Lamelo Ball. And one of the most interesting to me was kind of like an enigma is Killian Hayes, who played in France. I really don't know that much about him. And there's also people like also Tyrese Halliburton also. So who do you think would you... How would you rank those three, and what what can you say about Killian Hayes, for those who don't know? Okay, so Killian Hayes is a 6'6 point guard, son of an American basketball player, grew up in Florida, but uh, went to play pro in, in France and then Germany for his, his final year before coming over. He is extremely crafty, left-handed pick-and-roll operator, makes basically every type of pass you could want. Um, in the past year, he's really developed his shot creation ability uh, as he's gotten stronger. The knock on him when he was younger was that he was like the slowest thing in the gym and he could beat you, but everybody would just catch up. And uh, now he's he's adding double step backs. Uh, he's dropping people with crossover, something that just wasn't going to happen before because his change of direction isn't there. And he was playing against grown men and, and more than holding his own. He's more of a shooter off the dribble than on the catch, which has a lot to do with the problems of his rhythm. To me, I think that for the teams at the top, he's probably a better fit than Mello, just based on how easy it is to fit him into a modern offense without having to, to change things for him. Then So I would have Killian, then then Mello for, for most of the teams at the top. Then I would have uh, Kyra Lewis uh, out of Alabama, the ultra-speedy point guard. And then I would have Ty- Tyrese Halliburton, who I don't really consider a point guard. He's more of a, a connector for a good team, but he doesn't really have a use as a point guard because he struggles to get pressure on the paint. He's all, in a lot of ways the, the inverse of Kyra. Because Kyra lives in the paint, he's you know, the fastest prospect in this class. Um, with with the ball in his hands, they're just in a straight line race. And Halliburton consistently 
uh, avoided finishing at the rim or, you know, would get almost there and pass out because he didn't believe he could finish. So I think that his passing makes him, you know, you could call him a point guard, but the idea of running Halliburton pick and roll at an NBA level isn't going to yield uh, positive offense unless, you know, your team has two better creators who are tilting the defense before Halliburton catches it. So coming into the college season, there was a ton of hype around Cole Anthony. I remember seeing a a bunch of hype videos about him when he's been playing in high school, and I'm like, wow, this guy's going to be really good. But he kind of has slid down a lot of people's draft boards, which is, I think, due he got injured in North Carolina. So, yeah. He, well, he what had, do you think about Cole Anthony? And why so yeah, do you Cole, think he, he slid so much? So I think there are three factors in why Cole slid. The first one is the injuries. He had a... Uh, a meniscus tear. Uh, it wasn't a singular thing. It was just, you know, years of landing on that knee. And trying to play through a meniscus injury is, uh, is painful. It's absolutely some explosiveness. The the second one would be, like, his context in North Carolina was really bad. He was in a circumstance where he was expected to do everything. There wasn't a ton of shooting. And, you know, when you combine that with the injuries, you just get the, the standard of play. So he missed a lot of shots. His point guard skills got exposed a little bit. And this combination of things led him to go from being, you know, a, a top five guy to, to late teens, mid twenties guy. There are, you know, there are concerns about how a guy who is a fantastic, who's absolutely the lights out shooter in high school, you know, turned into an average college shooter who lived on tough shots. And I think the answer to that question is he's like, he's not a primary. He's not the guy who starts every possession with the ball in his hands. Um, but if you want to put him, you know, next to, you know, your jumbo initiators, your Giannis's, your Lucas. You don't have to have worry about that concern, and you can get the shooting and the ability to attack a tilted defense without having to worry about handing your offense to to you know an undersized combo guard. So you talked about him a little bit before, but Devin Vassell, who FSU, he's gotten a lot of comparisons to Mikael Bridges as a, like a really solid three and D type of player. But there was a recent clip of him practicing his jumper that a lot of people. We're like, really concerned about. So how much stock do you put into a video like that? And what do you think about Devin Vizel overall as a prospect? Yeah, um, the video is concerning. But it also reflects something we already knew is that like Devin Vizel needs to get stronger. Um, you know, he was shooting from like two feet behind the volleyball line. His his shooting motion already has like a, a hitch at the top. He shoots it somewhat like Larry Bird, I would say. It's not as pronounced of a, of a back hitch, but it's somewhat. So when he shoots from very deep. Some funky things can happen. It's not ideal. Um, and, you know, NCAA weight training and his you know body getting more mature is, is going to, in time, sort that out. I would feel a lot more concerned if Devin Vassell wasn't a 40% shooter on good volume of versatility both of his college years. So I don't think there's a chance that he goes from being an excellent college shooter to a to a bad NBA shooter just, you know, based on a on an open gym video during the 14 months or whatever we've had between the end of the season and, and the draft. With Vassell, he's he's a genius when it comes to defensive rotations. Uh, he's the only guy in this class who I've seen over-rotate on defense and miss a steal because he jumped it too much. He's consistently in the right place. While he's not the guy that you would put on a Kawhi, just because based on his strength level, having him on your defense makes it so your defense will not be bad because he's always going to be on the right spot in pick-and-roll rotations. Uh, he's the best closeout artist in this in this draft, and it's a guy who will not allow a defense to fail just because of his ability to do little things. And in a draft where a lot of or the top two teams need win-now pieces, Devin Vassell checks those boxes. 
So we've been talking about it for a while. It's just it seems like there's a lot of volatility at the top of the board. But do you think that there could be a couple of sleepers in this draft class in like the mid to late first round? Yeah, I mean the name that that I come back to over and over again is Tyrese Maxey, um, who had a sort of similar situation as Cole Anthony, where he was seen as a top five guy in this class, and then he went to Kentucky, and the Kentucky situation wasn't great for him, and it also uh, illuminated some of his flaws. Maxey was a good shooter in college, or in uh, in high school, but then a poor shooter in college. And I generally believe the the larger sample of high school NYBL than than you know twenty thirty one games of college. the The pitch for Cole is sort of the idea for Maxey, except Maxey is much bigger. He's a better finisher, and you have a guy who meets all of the the touch requirements. You know, floaters, finishing around the rim, free throws to prove that he's an excellent shooter. So even if the shot looks a little bit low, we're talking about a guy who is going to look better playing the pro game with less responsibility than he was playing the college game with more. And guys who make, who meet the finishing at the rim, finishing at the free throw line, and floater touch rarely turn out to be bad shooters. Shout out to TJ Warren. Warren. And then you add in, you know, being a, a strong guard allows you to guard up. So it'll be in, in, a, in a Milwaukee Buck system where... The guards have responsibility for guarding up bigger guys as long as they're aggressive. Uh, Maxi would be wonderful in that type of situation. And guys that win playoff games, we always come back and think, like, how do we miss out on this? Because it looks so obvious when they're put in proper context. The second guy is, is one that could either look you know, absolutely fantastic or or I could look like an idiot, and that's Alexi Pokashevsky. He is uh, 18 years old. He's Serbian, but he played in the Greek uh, second division last year. He's the closest thing to a 2K player I've ever seen in real life. He's like, okay, just bear with me here. He's a, a seven foot two guard. He might be like seven one by now because I mean, what? You know, so he's a seven one two guard. The thing is, he's probably closer to like six foot seven, six foot eight because he has like the longest neck and biggest head in the world. Uh, his wingspan is huge. He he's listed at two hundred one pounds, and that's probably a lie. He's probably like closer to like one ninety. He his favorite thing to do is to shoot like tough threes off the dribble. He w- would try passes that would make LaMelo ball blush. Like, honestly, he's throwing passes where I'm like, I do not, like, it'll get lost in his hands. I'm like, I have no idea what he's even going to attempt to throw there. The audacity is like the main thing that comes back. There's a guy who um, you probably couldn't tell him it was a mistake. He's very wired like Zlatan Ibrahimovic in that way. The defense, uh, again, skinny guy, but great rotation, old defender, um, steals and blocks like crazy. He'll meet, you know, bigger, stronger guys at the rim consistently just because of his timing and his length. He is a guy who needs to be treated with extreme care, both as his body um, and as his development. He didn't play a lot of minutes in second league Greece, not because he wasn't good enough. It's just because Europe doesn't allow for, like, teenagers to play. If you're really good, like, they know you're going to the league. Why would they play you? They're going to play the guys who are going to stick around. So he needs to be treated with, uh, I wouldn't say kid clubs, but a situation where he plays a ton whether that's the G League and then some NBA minutes, um, for a coach who's willing to be like, okay, yeah, I have a seven-foot-two guard. So let's run him off some player screens. Like, we're not going to make him do big man stuff. Let's give him some pick and rolls. And that's not everybody. So a creative environment with, you know, the right physio staff and and uh, you know, a balanced schedule between G League, NBA, and, and just putting carbs on him because, God, he's skinny. 
but it's hard to not watch his games and come away and think, think you're seeing something entirely different than everybody else in this class. Because there's so many guys who are like, okay, cool, yeah, that's an NBA player. Then you watch Boku and you're like, I have no idea what this is. Like, I've never seen one of whatever this is before. And that, that I don't want to say boom or bust because he does have, like, he has skills that keep people on NBA floors. Like, guys who can play rotational defense and shoot. His shooting numbers are a little damaged by, like, the, the some of the stuff he takes. I don't necessarily recommend, like, step-back fadeaways does um, let me know that these are things he believes he can regularly hit so that's a guy who like if you told me you were going to take him top three i would understand but i also understand when i talk to people who say that they have him 27th because they worry about his body so there are concerns but if he's a guy who if he hits we're going to look back you know the same way that we'll we look back at you know the, the previous mid-teens guys or it's like whatever concerns you had honestly you should have just bet on it because it's far more likely that NBA teams know how to develop people better than everybody else in the world. So you, this could potentially be an extremely risky pick if you take Alexei Pokashevsky. Yeah, it could be. I mean, but I also, like, I think the teams that generally would pick him are teams that understand that, like, you need a good developmental system. So teams that don't have a G League team would probably not take him. Or teams that are in win-now mode probably wouldn't take him. Which, you know, narrows down the field and probably makes it more likely that he would hit. It is an interesting guy. It's also, you know... If you're in a, a flat draft without superstars and I'm screaming, hey, I found a superstar, would you like to gamble on him? Like, if everybody else has, you know, a 2% chance of being a superstar and he has, you know, a 20% chance of being a superstar with a 60% bust rate, like, that's still the chance of being a star. I don't think those numbers are accurate, but like, because I have a little more faith in the kid. But this is, if you wanted to take a huge swing and bet on your organizational culture and bet on your organizational competence, like, this is the guy. So in terms of pure shooters, who do you think are the best in the class? Because I know there's Desmond Bain from TCU, who's a great shooter, but there's a couple of guys also like Tyrell Terry and Isaiah Joe. So who would you say are the best shooters? Yeah, so the four that jump out to me are Bain, Joe, Killian Tilly, and Sam Merrill. I mean, Bain has four years of just awesome, and in every single way possible. He's a guy who, again, will, will take things where you're like, okay, uh, he pump faked a logo three. I think against Baylor and the, the defender jumped at it, which lets me know all I need to know about how much defense is respect to his jumper. Isaiah Joe, like kind of only shoots threes, but he's very good at it. I think the name that people are going to say, like, where is he is Aaron E. Smith, who, you know, basically turned in like one of the best shooting seasons ever in like 14 games. And I went there statistically and tried to find anybody who was like an actual great shooter who jumped 20 points from their, you know, freshman from one season to another. And I found nobody like the, the best I ever found from any shooter was like 14 points for, you know, taking a serious amount of a serious amount of attempts. And wow. so to me, that seems like, OK, if he hadn't gotten hurt, he would have fallen to the ground a little bit. The next one's Killian Tilly. Um, it's unfortunate that, you know, he can't stay healthy. But to be the level of shooter he is at his size is just truly ridiculous. Um, his worst shooting season is 40% from three. Wow. Um, which for a big guy is nuts. Um, he was a cheat code every single time except on the floor for Gonzaga. And uh, we were robbed of, of you know, four years of health from him. Um, I still believe that he's worth, uh, and sort of the same argument as Poku, was like, here's a guy who you know is extraordinarily good and like would be a weapon in a playoff game. And if you believe in your physio staff, like you should take him. Um, and then the last one, Sam Merrill out of Utah State. Um, he would be a much higher pick if he wasn't like older than dirt. Um, he's 24, I believe. Yeah, that's which old. is 
it's a it's quite old. I think his worst season is like forty one percent from three. Oh, again, the 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 notes about you know Utah State plays a level of competition that allows you know there's if he's that good of a shooter, the only way that you're going to make that number go down is by playing high major guys who can alter his shot. He doesn't play enough of those, you know, over four years. But you don't shoot that well for that many years without being a hell of a shooter. So those would be the four. You know, you have Bain, who I think should be a lottery pick. Joe, who's you know should be gone in the twenties. Tilly, who's like a late first, early second, and then Merrill, who's a late second. And those would probably be my four best shooters. So there's another uh, second round draft guy, late second round draft guy, Marcus Howard. So what do you think his potential could be? Do you think he could kind of be like an Isaiah Thomas, who like really blossomed as a as a sixtieth pick in the draft? If that's what, what indeed does happen to Marcus Howard. I mean, the main difference between Isaiah Thomas and Marcus Howard is that Isaiah Thomas is built like a bowling ball, and Marcus Howard is not. And by virtue of just how much weight and how much explosiveness Isaiah Thomas had, he was able to to leverage his uh, creation with the ball going downhill towards the rim and getting fouled. And Marcus Howard takes a lot of his shots going backwards because he doesn't have that same level of, of physicality or of burst. I think that Marcus Howard is going to play in the league how much is to be determined. I think there's probably better money for him playing overseas in like Turkey or Spain, depending on his his level of commitment to to being an on-ball guy or off-ball guy. The challenge with smaller guys is always how many NBA skills do they have? Like, you know, everybody in the league is, is an absolutely nuts basketball player. But if you're, you know, under six foot, you need to have three NBA skills. And one of them should probably be point of attack defense if you're not, you know, an Isaiah Thomas level playoff bucket. So with Marcus Howard, like he has, you know, the shooting, and I guess you could say the off the dribble shooting are two skills, but like his third NBA skill is the thing that will keep him, you know, as he's probably going to be, you know, he has a skill that's extraordinarily valuable and could keep him in the league, but he needs to get that third skill. And whether that's, you know, uh, being able to be a passable defender, being able to be a floor general, just one other thing, they'll keep him on the floor and he, They'll stick around. If not, then you know there's millions of dollars to be made to play overseas or, or drop sixty on somebody somewhere. So, as a Nets fan, I love to clown the Knicks on this show, and we do know the Knicks have the eighth overall pick. And who do you think could potentially be the Knicks savior in this draft? I mean, the problem for the Knicks my entire life is that they've searched for a savior. It's that like they're always, you know, believing that one person is going to come and, and fix everything. And like, I think that that thinking has, has caused more problems than anything. The reality is that the Knicks have had um, an institutional rot for a number of years, assuming that, you know, there was, you know, a quick fix or, you know, slapping some tape on uh, whatever problem, you know, and then a good player would come along and fix it, whether it was, you know, LeBron uh, during the decision or, or KD, or, you know, Mellow Plus Stars, or, you know, what have you. And the reality is that they need to do a total rebuild. So the people who are going to be the, I don't want to say savior, because, you know, that's the problem. But the people who will rebuild the Knicks are the people they hired this summer, which would be Kenny Payne, Johnny Bryant, and Tibbs. And what they need to do is, like, actually have a developmental staff. And to treat the Knicks like a young franchise with assets, and treat the Knicks like a team building rather than a team that, you know, is just one one click away from from contention and, and you know, returning to the to the glory days of uh, when the garden was Eden. So, you know, Kenny Payne brings the 
the Kentucky connection. He is the big man developer guru. Um, he is, you know, the right hook god. There's not enough can be said about his work at the Cal era. How many big guys have sworn by his ability to get the little things through to them? Uh, Johnny Bryant is a uh, guard developer from Utah. Worked with Dame, Gordon Hayward, Donovan Mitchell. Um, again, another details guy. Working on narrowing down footwork, getting into patterns, like the things that bad teams do to become, you know, solid foundational teams. And then Tibbs. Like Tibbs is a lot of things, but he's a very, very good defensive coach. And he is going to scream blue and, you know, get after people in the huddle and make sure that there is uh, a defensive accountability. And that appears to be, at least from the outside, um, the issue that has gone on for a long time is that the Knicks have uh, carried themselves like a franchise that doesn't need that sort of structural correction. And if, if I were to be given you know, a, a franchise in, in serious problems, I could do a lot worse than taking three developmental guys like that. So with with Tibbs, do you think that he could be that kind of developmental guy? Because we obviously know that he's a great defensive coach. But he does have a reputation of running people into the ground. He kind of did it to Derrick Rose. Yeah, I mean, Derrick Rose is not his fault. Derrick Rose's fault is that he never learned how to jump or had never learned how to land. Like, true. If but you he want does, to play, he does play his players in an insane amount of minutes. Yeah, and you know, there's also there's a lot of blame to go around in in Chicago. Uh, if you ask any Chicago fan, they will gladly point the finger at literally everybody. It's yeah. ownership, it's gar packs, it's the medical staff, it's Tibbs, you know, it's, you know, Noah and the guys for agreeing to play these many minutes. But I'm mean, at the end of the day, like Tibbs is a guy who demands detail oriented work. And that's what development is, is finding little corners of the world and picking it, picking at them, picking at them until they're firm and then moving on to the next thing. Is he probably going to play somebody 46 minutes in a game one time? Yeah, I think he's slowly gotten better about that. And as Teams have had more and more data about, you know, medical red lines and biomechanics. You know, Tibbs is going to have blowback to some of the old behaviors. But at the end of the day, basketball minds like that and uh, people who are as continuous in their approach of excellence uh, will produce development, especially when you're surrounded by uh, other people who are of the same mind. So you just mentioned that you're a Chicago fan and they do have the six overall pick. So... Who do you think that they're going to draft, and who do you think they should draft? Who do I think they're going to draft? I mean, I think they're going to draft Obi Toppin, because that, that seems right to me. Who do I think they should draft? If Killian Hayes is there, just take Killian Hayes. Uh, Killian Hayes or Isaac Crow be the two people that... If, if there's not a mistake among those two. I mean, it's two different theories of, of two different teams, but they've had trouble with, with wing defense for a long time, and... Okoro is a you know a fantastic one on one defender who brings playmaking, chops as a as a short roll four and just a, a free throw tank, and then Killian is is a maestro who can work off Colby and Zach. Um, the fit isn't seamless depending on how well Kobe shoots, but you have enough of a baseline to believe in the Cardinal Service era in Chicago. All right, well I think that's gonna gonna do it. All right. Thank so, you so much yeah. for having me. Yeah, thank you for coming on, and it was really a really awesome conversation. Thank and, you. Uh, yeah, thank you for listening to the Getting Buckets podcast. Subscribe to us on Spotify, subscribe to us on Apple, follow us on Twitter, and do not forget to follow PD on Twitter at Above the Break 3. Thank you.
and we'll see you guys next time. Peace.